Let's take our Bibles at this time and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We often turn to this as we're reading the law, the Ten Commandments that are revealed in Exodus 20, the first 17 verses. We're going to consider, because we consider the law in detail in our preaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to consider what happened after the giving of the law, immediately after, in verse 18 to the end of the chapter, a very significant um, first reaction to, of the people and a very significant first revelation to the people uh, by God after the giving of the law. Exodus chapter 20, remember God is visiting the people on the Mount Sinai, it's all smoking and there's there's lightning and there's earthquakes and there's souls shaking as well. And here is the context, verse 18, the word of God. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. Just a word about the sound of the trumpet there might have been by the angels who were there. There were thousands and thousands of angels, we read in other parts of the scripture, accompanying God as his messengers and maybe as his trumpet players. But that sound would get louder and louder and louder. And so maybe we've been irritated by sounds and sounds that would get louder and louder and more piercing uh, after one after another. But imagine... God's trumpeters, or God himself, for all we know, sounding trumpets at the giving of the law in the context of his own holiness. God sounding forth something here of his holiness and of our not being holy. Something as well is sounded here that we all need to hear. We shall. The mountain was smoking. When the people saw it and heard it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Let's rephrase that. They said to Moses, you speak with us and we'll hear you, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, You've seen that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, Gods of silver or gods of gold you shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. You're not going to fashion it and fit it into and to your own imagination of what an altar ought to be. Don't do that. For if you use your tool on it, you've profaned it. You've made what's holy common, just an ordinary work of man. 
But this is an altar of God. More on that later. Nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. So we read the word of God at Exodus. Israel's on the mountain and Israel blessed there. No one can deny that up to this point, the leading of God of Israel from the Red Sea and crossing through it all the way to Sinai some three months later has been full of blessing. And we read also in the very first part of Exodus 19 that they were borne by eagles' wings to this place and that God had led them to this place and this time in their lives and their constitution as a nation to be with them. They're explicitly told that I led you to this place to be with you and so that you might be with me. And that's a great thing, a great thing. But there's a problem. Immediately after all these things, the law starts being sounded forth. The Ten Commandments, oh, there's the prologue, I'm your God, you're my people, and so on. But then there's those Ten Commandments. And soon there will be hundreds and hundreds more given to the people. And the people, in light of these things, is restless. They're fearing God. They're fearing God who is speaking in the thunderings, the lightnings, and the earthquakes, and trumpets, and so on. But also that God who articulates how great he is and how holy in this law. In fact, at this time, in this Exodus 20 revelation is the beginning of the book of the law. It's being read to them, uh, taught them, and it will be for the establishment of what the Bible calls an old covenant, a way that God speaks to the people, but behold, we need to, it's a way of death. It's a ministration of death. There is no life in that law. Because the problem is the people by it know their sin and they're exposed to the wrath of God as far as they can see and feel in their conscience so that if they would see God and hear more from God, they would surely die. Well, we need to hear this law today. And we do this and we want to consider this giving of the old covenant in the light of two laws that are given to Israel right after the Ten Commandments. There's really two laws. One, number one, well, maybe one, has to do with their worship of God. Well, God says, don't make other gods with me. And he says, worship me in a certain way. Now, this has been said in the Ten Commandments, the first two specifically, but here God unpacks those commandments, as it were, and specifies just what he means. There's something revealed here that will be paramount for all of their life as the covenant people. It has to do with worship, worshiping God, and worshiping God in his fear, but also by faith. So we want to consider Israel on the mount once again, and that she's brought here from fear to faith. And the first thing we want to see is that revelation is given here, light from heaven, light, dazzling light, 
but it is so that she might be taught and led to the second fear. She is called here to the second fear. Just think about that for a minute. But then, from that fear, she's called to fellowship. And then finally, from that fellowship, she's called to purity and to praise in her worship and her life of worship. There's no doubt about it, God is speaking here. And when God speaks, that's called revelation. Revelation is the unveiling of the, the, the Godhead. It's the unveiling of the masterpiece who is God. The unmade thing is God. It is the unveiling, too, of the will of God for his people. And here it is to this special people, Israel. It is a revelation of how holy God is. We saw that last time. He's not of this earth. He's not made with hands. So we're not to imitate God or to pretend to get closer to God by things we make. He is to be revered, and he is to be feared. And this is an amazing thing. God is revealing to Israel what they already know, really, being people. People all know who God is. But now they're going to know it, and they're going to know it in a very special way. You knew that, didn't you? That God has revealed in the very works of his hands that he's God. That is, in all of creation, there's the heavens declaring his glory. Everyone knows there's a God. The fool, even, knows there's a God, but denies it and holds under the truth and unrighteousness that he might get away from the claims of this God. For God reveals himself as worthy to be worshipped. He reveals himself as the God who has a will. And even in the very creation, Adam and Eve knew this, they were to love God and to love the neighbor for God's sake. And they, they knew the Ten Commandments in, in their heart. And without the delineation of the Ten Commandments on, on Sinai, but in their conscience, they knew what's right, they knew what's wrong. And all people as well know that today. There's a revelation of God in the stars and in the beautiful days and in the ugly days, as we call them. In the storm, in the earthquakes, in the global warming or not. In society, there's all this work of God in creation and in his providences. He's teaching us something if we would only listen to it. Well... What we know from the Bible in Romans 1 is that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth under in unrighteousness. That's Romans 1, 18 and following. Wrath is revealed from heaven. Now Israel, therefore, when they're on this mountain or at the base of this mountain, is learning something of the wrath of God. They're learning something of what they deserve. They have been very ungrateful at this time, and all the time they've been. Even for three months, they couldn't keep their mouths shut, couldn't stop from complaining, and not trusting that God would care for them. They did not think that God was worthy of their attention and devotion, and that God's man, Moses, was sufficient to be a man who had their best interests in mind. They were complaining about God just like the heathen, the Egyptians who were left behind, and many of them 
on the shores of the Red Sea, their carcasses having been exposed to the judgments of God. They were just like that. And we are just like that. We hear this God who comes to visit us in any time. And there's something in us that shakes and quakes more than a mountain would shake because we know something of the claims of this God and we know something of the fact that we would disavow God. We would say, you're not my God. You're not enough. This day hasn't been a good day. You've, you've, you've not dealt me the right cards and so on. We're always complaining. We want it different. We want more health. We want more wealth. We want more companionship. We want someone different in our lives. We want a different uh, family. We want a different church. We want a different society in which to live. And, and all these things, it has to be different. And what we're doing is saying we want God out of the picture because he's just not getting it done. You ever think that way? If you haven't, this sermon is designed to make you uncomfortable because it's the nature of us all. And I don't care who you are, and God doesn't either. He says there's none righteous, and no, not one. And the righteous person would receive the providences of God and, and, and obey God, and whatever God says, I'll do it, and not just what to do, but how quickly and how high should I jump and all of these things. But there's a beast in us all. And there's this wrath of God that's revealed to against our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And we know we deserve it. You see, God will be God. And even though the whole human race has fallen into sin and there's none righteous, no, not one, there's still one righteous who's above the human race. It's called God and he must be righteous. He will punish iniquity when he beholds it. And this will be the punishment of death. And that's how God has punished the world. The wages of sin is death. This is what you earn. You think you earn life with God? You think, again, you should in light of the Bible. You earn death because God is holy and you cannot keep his commandments. And you don't want to either. So Israel has this fear. But there's in, in this natural fear... And when they read or hear the Ten Commandments, that's a revelation that sticks it to them even. They've heard all along God is God. They know him from creation. But here on this created mount of God's good pleasure, he will reveal himself in all of his holiness, as at no other time hitherto. Oh, there's the gospel. We who read this ought never to forget that. God says to them, I'm your Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. But quickly following upon that and ringing in their ears, and this in light of the thunderings, the lightnings, and the shakings, and so on, is the law. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 2, I believe that this is a ministration, the beginning of which is the ministration of death. Something here that gives them to fear as the heathen themselves uh, would fear death. Let not God speak with us lest we die, they say. 
That's the kind of fear they're fearing. Having the terror of a sinner in the hands of an angry God. Same sort of terror, the apostle says, he knows. So that knowing the terror of the Lord, we will persuade men to repent of sins. And yours truly would persuade men and women, whole congregations of them and himself, to repent of sins, lest the wrath of God come upon us. Now, that's a fear that today people may have, but they suppress it. People are bold in their sin. They're not even afraid of God anymore. The cross of Calvary One of the persons said there, don't you fear God? Wasn't that one dying on the cross? Don't you fear God? Mocking the Son of God? Aren't you afraid? People today, they don't fear blaspheme God, to debate with God, to kill off human beings originally created in the image of God right in the womb. They don't fear the consequences because they don't know God. They imagine him out of existence. They don't fear the consequences of messing around with the genders that God has given and the marriages that God ordains will just... Divorce over burnt toast or whatever. They'll fear the consequences. And Israel is, is being like that here. Uh, that is, she is fearing. That's a good thing. But it's a kind of fear that they ought not to have because they're God's people. Moses said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. Now that is awesome. Because they're told here at this point, you are the people of God and God has not come to kill you. Do not fear with terror. That's what he's saying. But at the same time, he says, do not fear with that kind of fear. You have to have another kind of fear, the fear that right now is being put before you, and that's the fear of awe at the majesty of God. That fear have. So he's really saying here, as Moses, don't fear, but fear. Don't fear this way, but fear another way. The way that I'm going to set before you is the way that you ought to show your respect for God. It's not crying and saying, no, don't be near to us. And we cannot, we surely will not live in your sight. But it is having a sense of awe. It is. Sense of awe 
and wonder. Now, you know, that's why God speaks to us. That is fear. His majesty may be before us, and we, we might have that kind of awe. Not abject terror, but the fear of displeasing God because we love God. So Israel, the call to have this fear. But not a bad fear, a good fear. An awe, an awe. So that they may not sin. So that they might be confident in God. Their fear might be changed to faith. Confidence, God is God. He's not going to go back on his promise. See, after all, they're supposed to see this law in light of the promise to Abraham, which had not been disannulled. It was not going to be. God had spoken to Abraham, I'm going to be your God, the God of your people, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here are the sons of Jacob 430 years later. And this Old Testament, Old Covenant that is being made here, that is put right upon the promises, doesn't negate the promises of God. God is still the God of the people. And yet there's this This cloud, as it were. This hard thing that they have to go through in order to arrive at faith in the God who loves them. And that's why the people here, though fear, godly fear, is set before them. I'm your God. Here's what you have to do. It's going to reveal your sin, to be sure, but I'm going to be your God. That's why this people... They can't take it. They can't take it. Deuteronomy 5, if you want to look at that later on, or even now, it doesn't matter, there's a parallel passage that comments on this, and at this time, the people being content uh, or, or saying, let's have Moses to be our mediator, they're content to go to their tents They're content to go to their tents. And they say of Moses, you speak with God and don't have God speak to us, please. So they're kind of getting it. Moses is going to be a mediator. But they're they're not really rising above the terror. And the the awe is, is working in them something that says, you know, we're just not going to come too close to God. Now, I just want to bring out this, beloved. I find here something that is a problem with all of us. God is revealed, the gospel's revealed, the law superimposed on the gospel, but now in the fullness of time even, we know Jesus And yet, we still want to stay away from God. We don't want to get too close. Would you say that? See, everyone is fine with God as long as he gets too close. Or as long as he doesn't get too close. We're we're okay with God as, as long as Jesus just talks to him. We don't. 
There's something mixed up about this people, something very problematic which has to change. After all, yeah, their fear is being set before them, but though it's beginning to take hold that they are God's people, they're not going to die, yet Moses, you can be someone who stands in between us, but we're going to just go to our tents and you do the religion thing for us. Now that's, I say, what can happen to us. God's okay to us, and I say this with reverence. Until he comes with thunderings, and until he comes and says, I am your God, and you are my people, and I will talk with you, and you will talk with me, and you'll talk with me about everything, and I'm going to talk to you about everything, and we don't want everything that God has to say. And it ends up we really don't have anything to say to God because we're hiding. When God comes too close, uh, we say no. I've seen that in my ministry, 30-some years. You know people enough, and you know their foibles and so on, and the people say, you're getting too close. They don't like that. And little do they realize this is kind of a test, not that I put on them, but God does. Because, you see, beloved, religion is about God coming close, even though we're sinners, and God coming close with persons who bring the word, and elders and deacons and one another in the church, even though we don't like it. We'd rather be in our tents, in our homes, not in the church home. What do you think? What do you think needs to be said, really, to all of us? What is being said here? The people, they were standing far off and saying, Moses, you can draw near. That's your job. That's what we pay you for. We're going to stand far off and drink tea and reap the benefits, maybe, of this God. And hopefully he'll, he'll be nice to us. But they don't want to go close. And you see the whole of the New Testament religion, the abolishment of the old covenant and the new is exactly so that we do draw near. They're missing it here. Hebrews says, draw near. Draw near. Let us draw near. Why? Jesus is crucified for such wretched sinners like you are and, and I am. Draw near. Fear God in all be of him, but believe in 
as the God of your salvation. And that is for fellowship. The commandments that are given after the Ten Commandments have to do with worship, verse 22 and following. The Lord speaks to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the first exposition of the law. God is saying what I just said. Have no other gods, don't make any graven images. Here it is. You've seen I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, who's in heaven. Gods of silver, gods of gold, you shall not make uh, for yourselves in addition to God. And then there's prescriptions about the altar and about their approaching God, not in steps, but um, in another way that wouldn't expose their nakedness. What's going on here? Well, beloved, just think, first of all, of what's being established here, the laws of offerings. And what God is saying here is, you shall not uh, make uh, anything to be with me, gods of silver and gods of, of gold, but you shall instead make an altar just to me, and then you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Now, what God does here is deal with that problem that we have when we think there's a gap between us and God. We want to fill it with gold and silver. We want to make other gods, other ways of getting to God. I don't know why Israel would be tempted to this or why we are, but maybe it's because silver and gold, those are nice things, and they don't demand anything of us. We just have them, and they're good for us. And that's the kind of God they wanted, not someone who demands something of them, not someone who just tears them apart and undoes them as Isaiah was undone at the vision, vision of the thrice holy God or as John was undone like unto death when he saw the exalted Christ in Revelation chapter 1. We like nice gods. Gods of refinement and gods of opulence and wealth, and we can show them off. But an unmade God, uh, can't control that God. An unmade God, an uncreated one, someone who is above us, and uh, I can't go with that. So God warns against this idolatry, this image work uh, making, but then he gives them this way that they're to come just to him of sacrifice and sacrifice on this altar, burnt offerings and peace offerings. Now, about those offerings, the burnt offering was a bull or a goat or something that would be completely consumed in the fire. And before that, the... the uh, Hands would be laid on the bull and the goat to show that the people were represented in that bull or goat that was wholly consumed in the fire, signifying complete devotion to God, signifying we're not holding back. 
We're giving ourselves to God. That's what that symbolized. And ultimately, beloved, this symbolized because it was another who died in their place, Jesus Christ. Here you have the revelation of Christ in the revelation of God, of course. God is not known and God is not known as the God of Israel and the God to be feared other than in the name he gives and here to this people. My son, my son offering, who's a sin offering, my perfect son. That's what they're taught here. And then they're taught through peace offerings, which were offerings uh, of animals killed and then whose edible parts were to be eaten, offerings of fellowship, saying that part of this goes into the fire, but the benefit is that we get to fellowship and to eat with God. There's reconciliation. So burnt offering in the place of the people, peace offerings so that the people themselves could participate in the blessing of the, the offering. They're both together. And that tells us of the manifold blessing that Jesus is. All the offerings point to him. All the blood and all the eating and drinking, all the celebrating of God, like at the Lord's Supper, they have to do with our focusing on Jesus Christ. And this is what the people are going to have to know. Pretty soon they're going to have the laws for the tabernacle and worship. This will be where there will be the altar of burnt offering and the places of acceptable sacrifice. But, but really, every place, God says, where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. This is what's being taught here. I will come to you and I will bless you. And this is exactly what God said when he said, I'm your God, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And he said to Abraham 400 years earlier, I'm going to be your God, the God of your children. Now he's saying, every place where you are and where you name my name, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bless you. And it's just exactly like and even brought out more in the New Testament where Jesus says, wherever two and three are gathered in my name, worshipers of God, there I am in the midst of them. I will come to you. And bless you. So Jesus, Jesus is at the center of this. And the offerings, the offerings that are to be offered, they signify the fact that there needs to be offerings because you can't keep these laws. You can't keep the laws perfectly, but my son can for you. This is how I'm going to sacramentalize it for your sake. Then, beloved, there's fellowship. And I want to ask you the question, you know this fellowship of God that God has come to you and blesses you. This is long ago, far away. Israel on a mountain, People with the Abrahamic noses and the genes of the Jews. And here we are, dressed up nice in a church, quiet place. The mountain's not shaking. But the word of God is being spoken. And the trumpet is sounding, can't you hear it? 
and the promulgation, the proclamation of the gospel that God is the God of sinners is being pronounced. And the call to repent is being issued. Repent, you sinners, and draw near to God and don't stay far away in your comfortable, convenient, Christless, bloodless life called a Christian life. That's what God's saying to us today. It's a congregation too. And he's saying it's all about my son. And now there's a prescription here to build an altar. And this is to teach us something of our devotion to God. That's my final point. He says this, an altar of earth you shall make for me, verse 24, you shall sacrifice on it, your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. Every place where I record my name, I'll come to you and I'll bless you. That will be the blessing of, of worship around an altar. And he says, if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. The idea, beloved, is we are not here to... Do something to try to earn something with God. That's how the commentators universally declare this. There should, should not be anything made with hands here. Just of the earth is what I want you to make this altar here of. And if there's stones just out of the quarry, just out of some hillside, take the stones and put them together and burn your offerings on them. Here, you see, is the great principle of, well, what's called free grace. And the great God who will be displayed and not men. Here is the principle that you cannot give anything to God out of the work of your hands. You can't make something and God says, well, I'm pleased. And now I'm going to receive you. You can't get up in the morning tomorrow and work and earn something with God. You can't put on a suit and you can't even humble yourself so that you pray and earn something with God. You can't believe yourself even unto heaven. No, you can't. Your faith doesn't earn anything. It's all about God and the offering of Jesus. Sinner, don't you know that? That's it. Anyone who hears... It's about Jesus and the altar called the cross of God's own choice. The place where the curse is borne by another. So you can't do anything. And then there's this rather cryptic explanation. Don't make steps to, your, to God's altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. We'll say this later on. There were steps made in sanctified altars in Israel. You can read of that in Exodus and Leviticus. There were steps up to where they would burn the offerings and offer the animals. And the difference was, is that at this time, they didn't have undergarments or they weren't prescribed, but later on they were. And the idea seems to be here that there was not to be any kind of patterning of worship of God after the nations. You see, the nations would worship their gods of gold and silver and whatever, and they would also do naked dances around them. They would 
think this is the greatest time when they could celebrate the greatest things that they loved. Well, beloved, if not making an altar out of your great work and your brickwork and so on is, is prohibited, that's not allowed, this also, this idea that you are not to expose yourself in your Christianity tells us that we don't have anything to give to God. We don't have goods to give to God. We may think we have goods to give to a man or a woman, but there's nothing that you can give to God. You don't do anything. You can't do anything. You don't have anything that's going to be pleasing to God. It's all about God and grace. So you have here the principles for simplicity and purity in worship, which the reformers picked up on. Here it is, a pattern. That's why John Calvin's Geneva was simple worship. That's why our worship is very simple. We don't want anything to get in the way of God and in the minds of the people other than God. We don't have liturgical dancing. We don't have this choreographed team, uh, this troupe of, 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 of people who are, will dance the gospel in front of us and, and make a great show. We just have a word. We just have a trumpet. We just have a shaking mount that's in the word. We just have a preacher who cares and, by the way, whose own body is just an earthen vessel in which there's nothing except the treasure of the gospel. But look at me. I'm nothing. But receive of me because the treasure I've been given is everything. Simplicity in worship, purity of heart called for now by those who fear God but don't stay away from God. Believe in God and trust in him. Well, God visits Israel in the mountain, and I trust that he's visited you today. Here's the mountain symbolizing the far greater mountain, the type of the mountain that we come to, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion, where there's a company of elect men made perfect by the blood of the Lamb. It's called heaven. God has met with us from heaven we might be lifted up to heaven and go there one day. We can hardly wait. Amen. We, pro- we pray to you, Lord, that you would bless us. Help us to hear the word that we've heard and have the godly fear of the fear that we've heard we should have that's set before us. Help us not to draw near and to mistake the mediation of Christ for Uh, the mediation of a man who doesn't even bring us into the throne room of God, but help us to remember Jesus, whose mediation, whose standing between the gap of God and sinners, leads us not only to the throne room, but to the living room, and to the seat of God and the embrace of God himself. Bless these people, Lord, of your good pleasure the people of the congregation, the blessed people of God who are just like your servant, so prone to sin, so in need 
of light from heaven that exposes sin not only, but reveals Jesus, Lord. And we hear Jesus and continue to hear him. In Jesus' name, amen.